welcome to episode 194 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 12th of September 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Fanny. Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. <laughs> Graham. Hello. And Will. Well, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> oh, the old order changeth, yielding place to new. Yes, it's all changed in this country, but uh, we don't really care that much about that. So let's go on with the Linux news instead. The first being that NASA has selected Sci-5 as a partner and is going to make RISC-V the go-to ecosystem for future space missions. This is a great big win for RISC-V, it would seem. NASA have got quite deep pockets when it comes to these things. This is exciting for the ecosystem. It feels like we've been talking about RISC-V for, I don't know, it feels like a, a while now. And we haven't really seen any concrete applications yet. And I know that this isn't a concrete application, but nevertheless, the trend seems to be going in that way. And it's starting to feel like it's going to become a real thing. And it's starting to feel like it's going to become a real competitor for ARM, or perhaps not competitor, but might like reinvigorate ARM a little bit and um, make them up their game. So I'm excited to read what NASA are going to do with it. Yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily going to be a direct competitor, but it's going to shake up the whole ecosystem, as it were. We're going to now have three potentially serious players in x86, ARM, and RISC-V, and that has to be good for all three of them. And you have to think that we've got a decent foot in that door now at this point because of the fact that laptops on the ISS or Linux and the helicopter is flying with Linux on board. I mean... Maybe we can hope that there'll be slightly less of the RX works in the world sort of going out there. But yeah, um, don't be too overly optimistic, maybe. But yeah, we've talked about RISC-V and its relative openness. It encourages people to use it, people to copy it, people to make derivatives of it. I'm really excited about getting some kind of architecture and hardware that, you know, is open in the same way Linux is. Um, And yeah, this will surely accelerate its use, if that's the right use of words i think it's more a case of being open in the way that bsd is open Mm. rather than linux though but i mean in a world of intel microcode and all the rest of it that's what we need i think yeah and in a world of arm socs that get a couple of years of support and then get dropped yeah and even still with binary blobs yeah and you can see that they're, one of our main goals, and this was a, a piece of hardware that was actually manufactured in the US fully as well, from their perspective, mm. not having to rely on a third-party country would be of a massive win there. Just poking around the SI5 website quickly, I was surprised to see that they've got 11 offices around the world and 600-plus people working there. They seem to have fairly quietly, well, as far as us open-source people are concerned anyway, fairly quietly just got on with building a sizable company that are putting out these products that are of real world use to a lot of people i should perhaps pay a bit more attention it's very uh, interesting to see i think the reason that they've been quiet about it to us is because it's not very interesting stuff on the whole there's a few interesting raspberry pi style spcs and whatnot but the vast majority of it is just microcontrollers doing boring stuff like i suppose in hard drives for example but And you have to imagine like in industrial applications and maybe even washing machines and stuff like that, really low power stuff that's not very interesting to us. But that's where you build your foundation. It'd be nice if they kind of had a board that was a bit more, well, comparative to the Raspberry Pi at 
last time I looked, they were still a bit pricey for what you were getting. And obviously, if you were getting that to develop stuff for hard drives or whatever, and you were a big company, yeah, no big deal. But for the likes of doing something at home with it, it's still a bit out of range, I think. Yeah, and the software support is great now, but it's not as good as ARM or x86 quite yet. It's getting there, but it's not quite there yet, I don't think. But hopefully NASA making a serious investment in RISC-V will be good for everyone in terms of pushing the whole thing forward. So well done, NASA. It seems weird, doesn't it, to uh, praise a government organization. But I suppose ultimately, (laughs) it's a government organization that is mostly scientists. So Mm, mm. maybe that's why. Well, we don't need no scientists. (laughs) Experts. Who needs them? Ubuntu Unity is going to become an official flavor with the 2210 release. This is a turn up for the books, isn't it? After uh, (laughs) Canonical totally abandoned Unity. The torch lives on. It does live on. It's a fairly small team, but I'm sure they're dedicated to what they do. Unity is, in my opinion, the best desktop for multi-screen use on Linux. It solved so many problems that, in my opinion, the other desktops don't do as well. It was very stable. It was very fast. It had relatively low overheads. It was a great desktop at the end. And it's nice that it still lives on. I'm not yet ready to re-engage with it, but I had a quick look at it today and it's it still looks like a decent desktop. So maybe, maybe the time has come. Is that PTSD, Will? Uh, maybe a little <laughs> bit. I was involved with magazines at the time and the amount of hate that Unity got. Also, we shouldn't forget about the whole, it seemed like the whole community, the whole internet was against Unity for the vast majority of its life, which, and I find this, it's usually lumped into all the other projects that Canonical has dropped. Like, yeah, here they had this brilliant desktop and then they dropped it. But the community hated it. It seemed to have so little support. Am I totally misremembering it? Because that's certainly how it felt to me. Well, I think to be fair, when Unity 7 first came out, it was very, very bad. As much as stability-wise, it would crash quite a lot and it just didn't really feel put together right. And it took years to improve and it did improve and it got a lot better but i i think you're right graham that it was because it was a canonical project it just got tarred with the brush that everything that comes out of canonical does that it was just shit and never really seemed to get over it well it was a big yellow taxi situation wasn't it Hmm. you don't know what you got till it's gone and once it was gone people realized actually this was pretty solid i have a couple of concerns about this rudra the developer is very young And when you're young, you've got a lot of time and a lot of enthusiasm. And as you get a bit older, priorities shift and stuff as schoolwork gets harder and personal relationships and all the rest of it. So I have some concerns there, but not not huge ones. The other one is the Wayland situation, because Wayland support is still lacking in any meaningful way on Unity. And, you know, this is coming from an XFCE user, (laughs) but nevertheless... I think that may prove to be a very big challenge for the team in the long run. Be funny if they get it before you do, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd be hilarious, yeah. yeah. I don't think they need to worry about X-Org going away in the next 10 years. Let's be honest. Not going away, but becoming less relevant as applications and toolkits and stuff just don't support it fully. I don't suppose X support will get dropped completely for applications, but you know, take some proprietary thing like Spotify or Slack or whatever. Within 10 years, 
won't really be doing much, if any, testing on X desktops. Yeah, that's an interesting angle. I I would imagine that the GTK toolkit will stop testing on X probably fairly soon, you know, to, in order to force people over to, to Wayland uh, a little bit more. Even so, I still think it's not really going to be a problem for a long, long time. Yeah, I think so too. X is like the fossil fuel of the Linux <laughs> desktop. <laughs> and interesting, those examples that you brought up could both be run in a web browser. You know, maybe that's what people will do. Yeah, but then will browsers support X still? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably somebody will maintain some fork of something running on X. <laughs> Probably. But it's a real vote of confidence in the project to be given official flavor status. That doesn't come easily. Yeah, and I don't know anything about this internally at Canonical, but it's nice to see Canonical recognizing the work that's been done and also that Unity still has a popular fan base. Um, and it's also what should happen with open source. You know, when the project was dropped and there's enough kind of, even if it's a single developer, enough support to keep something going, then this is exactly what should happen. And it is good to see official canonical support for it. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you should definitely check those shows out, even if you're not a patron. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. The GPG key for the GitHub CLI Debian package expired recently and didn't get fixed for several days and seemingly wasn't a high priority. And I think, Will, it was you who brought this up as indicative of a change in the way software is distributed these days. The story that they let the key expire is one thing. The other thing is that they really didn't give a toss that it had expired and that anybody who'd got the, the deb archive enabled on their machine was suddenly not able to get updates. Just like, meh, don't care. And then additionally, I don't think it is still fixed, at least on my machine. I went to do some upgrades today and it was still broken. So I removed that repo from my repo list in order to get everything else to update. So I think it's interesting in the way that it says to me that, that GitHub don't see Linux packages or specifically Debian repos as being worth the effort to keep maintained and up-to-date and refresh keys and update certificates and all that tedious admin that goes with running such a, a repo. It just says to me that they just don't care because they don't see it as anything that anyone is actually using. 
That's what it says to me. I'm sure that the vast majority of people using their CLI are on Windows, but there must be a huge number of people on Linux. And it just boggles my mind that nobody thought it was important enough that they should jump on it and fix it immediately. The thing I found was a bit weird was the fact that I don't use these things because I clearly don't use GitHub. I have an account, but anyway, they have these hosted runners that are run on GitHub itself. And these things have them built in, which means that they're also breaking, which I thought is quite spectacular that their own software is breaking. I don't really know what they do. Does anybody else know what they do? The GitHub runner is uh, certainly the hosted GitHub runners are like virtual machines that run on Ubuntu or Windows or MacOS and come with their own environment and all of that setup done for you and allow you to run a pretty straightforward script in their environment. But it, it does run on Ubuntu, so they should care. It's just unbelievable that then. To be fair, according to the install instructions, they've updated the key and they do provide official sources to update the key ring. I haven't tried it, so I don't know. It's interesting you say that because I was poking around in some of the bugs that people logged about this issue earlier today. And one of the bits of advice was, it's fine, the key's been updated, you just need to import it from the Ubuntu key ring thing, hosted key. So I did that and it still didn't work. <laughs> so... I don't think I did anything wrong. I, maybe I'm reading the wrong thing, but I'm, I'm not 100% convinced they have fixed it properly. Also, the um, update command is a, is a curl. Oh, good. With a pseudo DD command oh, in there. Just excellent. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Chamud, triple seven, everything. <laughs> Fuck's sake. I think it says it all when the, um, the list of Linux installation methods, the first one is homebrew. <laughs> the one that we use every single day, yeah. The one that you use every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not on Linux. <laughs> Fucking into DD. Oh, wow, I see that curl now. Oh, oh, I've had a heart attack. I've actually... Jeez, why? But this isn't just a Microsoft slash GitHub thing, is it? This is uh, a general move away from packaging stuff properly and putting it in repos properly. Yeah, but just remember, this is the world that people want. They want it easy for developers to fire it into a container and fire this onto your machine as easily as possible and not have a system admin go, what the fuck crack are you smoking? Stop that. Yeah. It's going to bite us bad. It really will. It'll only take a short amount of time and we'll all be crying. It does really expose all of those supply chain attacks to a massive, massive audience. As I said, this is this is this Microsoft's plan all along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's definitely just them who are doing this. Yeah, yeah. the rot from the inside. This is the software distribution world that we deserve. (laughs) All I can say, (laughs) even if it's not the one we need. All right, just a very quick mention for my NFT shit list. This was prompted by LG bringing NFTs to its smart TVs. So I've now started a list on my website that I'll link to in the show notes. And it's a list of well-known people and companies who have shilled NFTs. And you can tweet me or get in touch another way and tell me what to add to this. But it even includes the Linux Foundation and the EU. Can you believe it? The EU. (laughs) Vote Brexit. Let's do some feedback then. Michael wrote in to say, I read Peter Wright's book, Spycatcher, released back in 1987, and was impressed by how they were able to convert the sound from keyboards of teletypes in the embassies of countries of interest into the text they were entering. This typing sometimes contained the plain text message prior to encryption, as it was deemed safe to do it in their embassy offices. 
I can't recall the exact page numbers. However, this was achievable over 30 years ago, so it really is a rebirth of an old spy catcher's trick. God damn it, that's another book that's going to join my bookshelf of unread <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> but we weren't allowed to buy it in the UK, were we? I can't remember. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, I think, I think Thatcher blocked that from being oh, released. I'm doing that from memory sake. without Google. Did MI6 come around with a set of power drills and drill through the copies of the books like they did for the, the Guardian office? <laughs> but yeah, this goes back to uh, a couple of episodes ago when, Phelim, your uh, discovery I... was a modern version of this. And yeah, it's not a new idea, is it? It's still pretty bloody brilliant, though. Yeah, I, I knew it was old, but I didn't know it was that old. It's probably ironically simple when you look at it, but it just... It really takes away by the fact that you can't even bloody type on your fucking keyboard where some arsehole fucking stealing the info. Yeah. If you really want to be secret, you've got to go into a field somewhere and cover your mouths and whisper to each other. That's the only way to uh, to be truly private, it seems. The satellites, Joe. The satellites. Oh, yeah, shit. Now Graham's popped up with a Guardian article about uh, the inside story of uh, Spycatcher and how it was blocked. So uh, I'll put that in the show notes for people who care. I do think it's interesting, though. I mean, this kind of links to one of my predictions where I jokingly said about a book of using 8-bit computers so that we can remain secure. We're not doing enough, I think, to teach young people that nothing they can do is secret. Something that was taken for granted for a long time, even when there was the most oppressive states and regimes, everything has become accessible to everyone. And no one's really come to terms with that. I think it's going to take some time along with the whole technological revolution that we're part of. It's going to take some time to settle. And it's quite scary. I don't know what it means for society in terms of deep philosophical bullshit. Well, I remember when I was about 12, 13, I got hold of an old video camera that the family had had and it, the battery was totally knackered by this point and uh, I just hooked it up to a, a TV VCR all in one to record from it and I recorded all sorts of fucking nonsense on that just absolute nonsense that thankfully is long gone it's probably in a landfill somewhere someone might find it in the future but the point being that I didn't put any of that on the internet and young people today upload that sort of shit to the internet whether it's TikTok or YouTube or whatever. And even when they don't, it might be done for them. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, where I had just this old school analog recording thing and just the fucking nonsense that me and my mate used to come up with, like attempts at comedy and shit that is just so cringe now to even think of it, never mind watch it. Yeah. And just knowing that that was there in the moment and then it, it's gone forever now, that's good. Whereas there is no gone forever anymore. Yeah, and that's really sad and I don't know what it means for human development because, you know, people need that kind of safe area to grow up in. One of the things that concerns me is that within a generation or so, the idea that you are able to do things without anybody watching you or monitoring you or keeping tabs on you is even an option. It would just be lost to the mists of time. And if we don't make people aware that there are alternative ways than just posting your pictures on the internet with geotags or videoing every thought that you have and sticking it up on YouTube, then this concept of a private life will be forgotten and and people will be trapped in this world where everything they do is monitored. So I think it's important that as 
hopefully protectors of free speech and general freedoms that we do we do keep telling people that it doesn't have to be this way and we risk slightly becoming that crazy old man in the park shouting nonsense at pigeons but i think we need to do it i think i think there needs to be a voice for people who want to protect privacy yeah and the problem is that what you're doing there is won't someone think of the children and you're actually thinking of the children whereas now it's all let's think of the children with algorithms and technology rather than thinking of the children of well maybe technology isn't always the answer maybe putting your phone down going outside and kicking a football around is the answer and gossiping with your friends when no one's listening and becoming a person not in front of lenses and microphones although again even then you know, you go and play football with your friends in the park, even if you haven't got your phone, some other fucker's going to have his phone filming it, probably. I think we've crossed that boundary into a post-privacy world now. I think that young people just, there is no such thing anymore. They have just accepted that everything they do is in public. Things were better in the old days. Yeah, exactly. When it was all fields around here and you could actually play football without being filmed. And Thatcher was banning books from being sold. <laughs> yeah, and the, you know everyone was on strike, and the bins were piling up, and uh, there was like crazy inflation. Yeah, it was it was totally different when we were young. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop-down at checkout, and you can select late-night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here. The first one was a Reddit thread that Neil Gomper replied to, and the, the thread was asking why none of the major distros have KDE Plasma by default. And he did a really good job of explaining why he thinks that is. Yeah, I mean, especially for Reddit and then especially for r slash Linux, it was an exceptionally good and well-informed post. Um, he packages lots of things, but he packages uh, Plasma for Fedora. And so he knows he's worked with the projects for a long, long time. He knows exactly the difficulties in dealing with all the distributions as well. And really, it's better to just read it, but it basically says it's just so many, there's so many moving pieces. It's been difficult to consolidate all of that into a single kind of set of packages that people could re rely on without too much labor to be able to package in a, in a distro. Yeah, whereas GNOME, which tends to be the default, is just much more predictable. Everything comes out once every six months, and it's easy to plan your schedule around that as a distribution. In a way, I'm kind of happy there isn't a default. Like Neon, I would say, is probably the most default. And I kind of like the way they run, because it's a LTS underneath, and then they the newest bits when they're there and ready. I, I don't know if you'd feel the same. Obviously, Graham, you use Arch, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel KDE being a community based thing is totally fine by me. I kind of almost prefer that at this point. Yeah. I think it's actually flourished in this way. Um, and it's been able to kind of develop in the way that we've seen it and in the way it's been unstable for a long time or been had too many options or it's been a bit difficult to use. 
And I think it's really benefited from not being like a default desktop for some distro. But I do actually really think this is an opportunity for some distro to do a beautiful job of packaging KDE and making some choice, some good choices on defaults. Because it's also often the desktop that's used in kind of offices and places where they're trying to usurp Windows. Um, so I think it does have its place. Yeah, I also like this funny bit about the GNOME devs, the fact that there's so many paid desktops that are able to just ignore the GNOME devs because they're funded from upstream. I thought that was quite a funny comment. <laughs> there was one bit that I didn't see in the short amount that I read because I just fucking hate Reddit. They're on the NFT shit list as well, incidentally. And that was the Steam Deck. Of course, Steam OS has KDE Plasma as default. And that is a major distro, or it soon will be when they ship enough of those things out. I mean, they're still like 700 quid plus on eBay. So uh, there's still a huge demand for them. So th there's going to be hundreds of thousands of them out there, which counts as a major distro to me. Yeah. But, you know, Arch and all that, immutable, <laughs> sort of solves the problems. But KDE Plasma is kind of like your hipster desktop, isn't it? And uh, you wouldn't really want it any other way, Phelim. I know like you try and promote it with KDE Corner and everything, but the bottom line is, if all the distros were using it, you'd probably switch to fucking XFCE just to be a hipster. <laughs> I would not, no. I like KDE because I can change the way it works. And I like the fact that that's the way it works, is it doesn't enforce its sort of dictatorship upon you. <laughs> Yeah, much like XFCE, plus you get to be a hipster. <laughs> anyway, KDE promo sprint, what's this? Yeah, they met in France to go through some of the promo stuff, and they came up with some ideas for KDE4, and they thought of various things like kids, devs, researchers, whatever, and trying to link up groups with products, you know, like the various apps, you know, Gcompris, etc., for kids and whatever. And then they went through what they do if they were found any that were missing for any groups. And their idea was that they would promote a non-KD application because our FOSS is good. So they're happy to do that. And another thing that they were talking on is they've been working on diversity as well. And there's the networks initiative, which I hadn't actually heard of where they have groups in India, China, Brazil and the USA, which is kind of funny to hear them on the sort of not as popular side of things in KD land. Because people would see the, you know, the European group would be the main area for KDE and they, they didn't want it to be like seen as the default. So they're trying to remove that implication by also creating different groups for there as well. And it's nice to see some good work on some inclusiveness. All right. What's Caden 0.9 with end-to-end uh, -end and ATM? This is quite cool. So Caden is a XMPP client. And the idea is it uses an end-to-end -end encryption protocol called, now, I don't know if this is OMEMO or O-M-E-M-O. I've never heard anybody say it out loud, but it is essentially a end-to-end -end encryption system where you don't trust the server you're using. So say you were talking to someone else through, I don't know, like a Google chat back in the day. The idea is that you can go up to someone's phone, you can pair with each other, use a QR code in Caden, and then that is you two paired together. And then you can talk through an open chat server that doesn't have encryption or you know it might have HTTPS or whatever but that allows you to talk through that server and not trust that server because it can't read your messages anymore the other part is ATM which is auto trust management and that is a way to get that QR syncing together done automatically so if you've synced through various other protocols to each other like on your phone or on your chat on your desktop if you then add a tablet device it would then be able to link into those two and then pass that along to the other person through that other already existing channel that you've got with each other and essentially 
save you having to bring that tablet to them and take a picture of the QR code with it. They have a diagram to try and explain it maybe better than I can, but uh, it's quite cool. And it's nice to see XMPP not die completely and means that open servers are available for people to use. All right, and a couple of Nate's usual This Week in KDE updates. Yeah, it's mainly the Plasma 526 stuff and there's some really cool stuff and just a couple of quick ones. It's like the day color now as well as night color. So you can set the color temperature monitors, which is quite cool. You have reviews in Discover. There's also share links in Discover, which is quite handy. I was trying to get something installed on a different laptop. It'd be nice to just send the link along that way. And then window positions per screen setting, which is quite handy for me. I've got multiple screens and often I just prefer certain apps to be in certain places. And there's also a thing for multiple screens where you've got a jump to for either the app to jump to the screen you're on if it's already running or you to jump to the screen where it's running. And that's a settable feature as well because choice is good. Right. Well, next to all that as usual in the show notes. We'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll have some discoveries and uh, who knows what else. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>